Welcome back to The Peripheral. On this episode, we're going to be hearing two stories, one about prescription addiction and one about drinking. Now, they are two very different stories, but both of these stories hit very close to home for me because of the events and details that happened. It reminds me of my family, my brother, my friends. If you combine these two stories, you have a large portion of my life. The first story is Jeremiah, who is in a difficult situation where he has serious back pain because he's overweight. The only thing that gets him out of this are pain pills, but the pain pills tend to be worse than the original problem. Imagine sinking in quicksand and somebody hands you a limb, but when you reach out and grab that limb, it's covered with thorns and it's your only salvation, but now you're stuck to it. Hello. Jeremiah. This is him. Hey, Justin. <laughs> How you doing? Good, man. Good. I grew up in uh, suburbs of Detroit. You know, I had a pretty normal life, you'd say. Uh, no, uh, in my childhood or bad things happening to me growing up, <laughs> you know, for uh, that you could uh, find a direct uh, cause or reason. It's a pretty, pretty normal life. Uh, you know, I went to college. Got a decent job after college. Uh, worked good ten years, possibly maybe. Uh, so we're talking early to mid thirties now is mm-hmm. when uh, the my problem with uh, opiates began to uh, unfold. I'm a uh, some may say a large individual, about uh, six seven, depending on the day, uh, 450, 500 pounds. You're a damn linebacker, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, but at this point in time, we're probably talking 2012, 2011. Uh, I started to get dangerously like above overweight. Like when I'm around 450 or five, being as tall as I am, luckily I can hide it pretty well or at least deal with it and get around and do pretty much what I need to do without any obstructions but uh, as I said I started to get up to around 600 pounds and then over 600 pounds so now it's at the point where every time I get out of bed it's my back's hurting every time I get in and out of a car it's a struggle uh, what's your occupation what was what were you doing um, I, I was a network administrator mm-hmm. slash uh, staff accountant so I have a degree in accounting, but it was a desk job. So yeah. I sat at a desk 10 you, hours a day, 8 to 10 hours a day. You don't move. I, I, no. <laughs> I've, had, I've had that same job. I mean, people think truck drivers, people think things that require you to sit, but in most corporate jobs, desk jobs, you don't move, and they don't – not that it's anyone's responsibility to tell you to get up and move around, but I remember I was getting very out of shape and having uh, high blood pressure, having, I mean, I would get winded just walking up a flight of stairs. So I, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, on your breaks, you're, it's when you get up and go walk around. You know, a lot of people on their breaks, they rest. But yeah, in the office on a break, you go walk around the warehouse, or try to get the blood circulating real quick. There are days where, you know, I, I would 
be seated for 12 hours. Yeah, so that, I'm sure that didn't help uh, my situation. Uh, yeah, I'm 625, give or take, and uh, barely can move now. And you know, I go to the doctor and say, you know, to describe my symptoms, what's going on. And, uh, you know, he gives me, I believe at the first time, he prescribed me like 30 uh, hydrocodones at a small strength. Like, I think it was 500 milligrams or 750. Yeah, those worked great at first. Uh, you know, the first month was great. I took them as prescribed. I took one a day or sometimes two, but, you know, never wasn't running out or anything and i was able to get to the start going back to the gym now this is a slow process mind you it took 15 months of this and you know every month i would go see the doctor and slowly you know I, in my head I, I thought i was getting better but looking back you know i know what i was doing like it was slowly increasing like it was 45 pills a month then 60 then 90 then 120 and before I know it, like I said, 15, 18 months later, uh, I'm getting 120,000 milligram hydrocodones. That's a month? A month, yes. And I was, however, 200 pounds lighter because I was able to get to the gym and return to an active lifestyle. But I had wound up with an incredible opiate addiction at the same time. So... You know, the doctor never asked any questions or seemed all that concerned. They were just, whenever I, whatever I said, they'd just write me more. That's, that's um, it's terrible though, because on one side, yes, it is helping you because you are, you are in constant pain. And if you're in pain, you can't go move around. You can't go and exercise because it's, it's too inconvenient. But when you feel better, you can go do these things, but now you've pretty much accomplished a full-on opiate addiction, right? Oh, indeed. I was uh, running out. I'd have to take five in the morning to get out of bed. You know, I had a circle of people that would sell their scripts, and I knew what days they got them and how many days I'd be without if if I took all of mine. And you know, it was down to a pretty crazy science and snow uh, i come from monroe michigan and that not anymore i moved but there is an absolute epidemic in that city and there's just a pharmacy on every corner and there's one popping up every other week it seems um if people aren't taking the pills they're selling theirs or they're on heroin um people literally overdose on their lunch breaks at the mire there uh, it happened more than once. Do you think that's because there's nothing to do in the town? Or do you think it's just people have this, it's like a pretty much a demand and supply. People want it, so more pharmacies open up. And what, what do you think I'm, is kind of the root cause there? Do you have an opinion? Yeah, I've asked myself that question a lot of times in the, in the last couple of years, you know, trying to uh, get to the root cause of, you know, at least what happened to me and the the most i can come up with is that because it's from a doctor you know people initially think oh it's it's fine it's okay and that's how it, it uh i think that's how it traps a lot of people 
Now, granted, there's a lot of people that are just abusing the system and just want their high and their fix, and there's always going to be that segment of people. But I think a lot of the reason why it's an epidemic at this point is because it, it can like take a person who is not it is not necessarily um, um, has no uh, history of of using drugs or illicit drugs and it can you know because it's coming from a doctor you think it's okay and there's then there's no stigma you know so yeah. there's not the stigma it's with you know like cocaine or something that's illegal technically so i think people think it's okay at first and that's that's the danger most dangerous time is at first at, at, initially when they're getting the buzz and the euphoria and they get wrapped up in it and think it's okay and it just destroys them so 15 months you have gone from what was it a uh, 500 milligram to a thousand milligram and three times yeah, the four. or four four times the amount of pills four times the amount twice the strength yep and are you interpreting the pain you feel now like anytime the the drugs would start to wear off i'm sure that you were going through withdrawal but at the same time you might feel that the withdrawal pains or you might misinterpret those pains as your back issue or other issues coming back and this is the the kicker of the whole thing when i'm after the 200 pounds was gone i guess it's not really that surprising but at 200 pounds less you know go figure i don't have back pain there there was no back problems when i lost 200 pounds i was purely taking them for for the high at that point like i was i had i had long since passed of it suppressing my pain i mean yeah it for to get to that level, I, I indeed, for the first, I don't know, 60, 70% at this point, it was alleviating the pain to get to the gym. And, you know, I, at this time, I was doing hour, hour and a half on the ellipticals with sw full sweatpants and sweatshirt. And Good just, for you, man. <laughs> yeah, awesome. just killing it, man. And But, yeah, I had zero back pain. and But here I am, absolutely out of control, isolated completely addicted to uh opiates uh it didn't matter norcos hydrocodone morphine uh, oxycontin whatever i could get it didn't it, it did not matter i had decent amount of, of money um i'm not married i don't have any children it was free for all it wasn't like a slow a slow fall it was you know like i jumped off a building but it was a really high building I was able to fool it or fool myself and my family for a while. My work moved about 10 years ago, and instead of doing the commute, I moved down there and away from my family. And Yeah, so anyway, I'm out of control, just like I said, spending tons of money and time. And But for a while, I was able to be functional somewhat. I was managed to hold down my job. I'm not sure how, but in August of 2013, or about that 15-month frame, give or take, I had my first overdose. Um, I was uh, I had some fentanyl, which that shit. No one needs to be messing with that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that stuff is stronger than heroin, they say. I don't know. I but, but it's legal, that. right? <laughs> oh, it's legal, yeah. Perfectly legal. Yep, and uh, they come in patches, like lollipops. People lick them and throw patches on there. Or, you know, some people suck on the patches. And it's just a super intense, probably the strongest opiate buzz you can get, I imagine. And I did too many. Uh, I was taking other things that night also, like uh, benzos, like some Xanax and other opiates. But for the most part, it was the fentanyl. And, uh, yeah, I was at my girlfriend's house, and we were going to go to a music festival. And I went on the porch to make a phone call and smoke a cigarette. And I woke up to on the back of an ambulance. And, you know, I, I mentioned my size before. And I'm, I'm like, ripping these. They had the tubes in my nose and, you know, we're things hooked up to me and i'm ripping them off and didn't know where i was at first and you know once i figured out where i was i was able to calm down and they, they got me you know sedated and they or whatever they did i don't know but they gave me the narcan shot which i don't know if you've heard but it's very unpleasant yeah. <laughs> it snaps you out of whatever opiate you're on it basically uh, nullifies the whole all the symptoms and all the consequences and it's a lifesaver but it's very unpleasant. It feels like you're on fire. You know, my girlfriend being there probably saved my life because if she wouldn't have been there to to get them, to get uh, emergency services there right away, I, I could be a vegetable. I could be dead. I, who knows? You know, that should have been rock bottom. It really, like, and for a long, for a couple months, I thought it was. You know, I didn't touch anything for a couple weeks after that. You know, it was just, it's, you know, it scared me, you know, they, I was in a neck brace, you know, I had a big-ass shiner from where I fell. Did you seek any rehab help to get off of the pills? Uh, yes. No, not, uh, I didn't do enough, but uh, I've been to quite a few NA meetings uh, about this time. Um, I started going and also was... Uh, Parents had me get into some counseling also, um, so I was seeing some pretty, uh, I'd say as much outpatient as you could probably do. I was doing, I was seeing a counselor a few times a week. Uh, I was, I did like 30 NA meetings in 30 days. In my mind, I was trying to, you know, combat this, this thing, I, I, but, uh, I was able to stay straight for a little while, but uh, we're, we're creatures of habit. So after a few months, you know, just slowly started falling back into the old ways. And we're in 2014 at this point. You know, still ha somehow still have my job. Um, still hiding everything from my employer. And start to... Uh, I go back to the doctor one day and uh, I had been to and he didn't didn't ask me where I'd been or why I hadn't seen me in the month or two that I hadn't been there or, you know just was back on it and you know just how much, took off again how much did he prescribe you when you came back same same 120 just got right back on what I was getting 120 uh, pills a thousand milligrams do doctors not even think 120 pills is 
it seems like such a outrageous amount to me, but it really is. And I know people like I'm, I'm a big dude, but I know this, this woman, she's five foot, nothing, 120 pounds soaking wet. And they prescribe her 180 and along with benzos and muscle relaxers. It's like, if she was to take what she's actually prescribed, she'd be a zombie. I can't fathom it sometimes. I have uh, a family member who they prescribe her, I think it's 260 Xanax a month. 260. Just take out of consideration that that's too much humanly possible that for them to take that without dying. Are they not accountable for when that person is now turning around and selling those pills? Because there's no way that they would take that many. So now they're, they're selling to people that either A, can't get a prescription or B, uh, are abusing their prescription and need more, such as in your case. I mean, when... Exactly. So you're back on them now. Um, back on them, full swing. Uh, everyone in my position has a few dealers on their speed dial. You know, you don't just have one. <laughs> Mine tend to like me for some reason could probably because all the money i give them though if they don't hear from me in a while they would call and check up on me see what's going on you know <laughs> we're at this point we're up to uh september of 2014 i'm at work just you know it was a normal day for me but you know this this day uh i was high on this percocet or hydrocodone or both maybe but uh was coming back from lunch and I uh, ran up the curb and hit like a like a stone that was in the parking lot like you know didn't didn't do any damage really I mean I put a nice dent in my car but unfortunately a few people saw it they reported me to HR I was obviously intoxicated but I don't think they really they didn't know like what I was on they might have thought I was drunk I think I don't know and at this point, I had 14 years there. This is my 14th year. And uh, so, you know, the vice president comes in and takes all my keys. And because after 14 years, you know, I had a lot of had codes and passwords. And oh, yeah. A lot of stuff. And uh, so I had to turn all that in. Uh, and, you know, he just told me to go home and, you know, he'd, he'd be in touch. So. I'm freaking out, thinking I lost my job. I don't know what I'm going to do. I started the unemployment process. And after a few days go by, they call me. And luckily for me, I'd been there so long, no one knew how to do my job. So, you know, they kind of they kept me on as like a consultant for a while. Like, basically, I trained the person to take over my job mm-hmm. remotely. So I was fired, but not fired. So... This was September of 2014. You know, I'm working remotely. Sometimes, you know, I knew I was what was. I could read the writing on the wall. I was fired, but I was going to help train them, my replacement. So I move out of Monroe, move in with my girlfriend, which wasn't the wasn't the how I planned for us to move in together. But you know, she's wonderful, and if I haven't said it, she's. Her and my mother are the only reason that I'm alive today. But uh, you know, I, I move in with my girlfriend, and I, I get a job delivering pizzas. And before that, I, I skipped over a story, but I, I completely wrecked uh, my car. Um, I had a trailblazer, you know, loaded, had the DVR player and 
with nice leather seats and everything. It was a really nice car. Completely one day, I just crashed it. Did you and, uh, hit, hit I, It was a one-car accident, okay. and I ran over. A, it wasn't a stop sign, but it was a street sign. Just completely tore up the undercarriage of the trailblazer. The cops showed on the scene, thought I was drunk, gave me a breathalyzer, gave me a field sobriety. I passed it. They wrote me a reckless driving ticket. Yeah, they had, but I didn't get arrested for some some reason. Because I was lucky, lucked out. The, it's it's because you weren't drinking. If you were, if you had been, you, you would have been arrested, but they couldn't pin anything on you. They couldn't prove anything because the, the laws just aren't written that way. <laughs> it's a whole other thing. It works for me, but it's scary, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, we can open that Pandora's box, but uh, luckily, you know, I'm able to uh quickly get a rental and get my car towed to get fixed well long story short i wrecked the rental it was a 2014 camaro um i don't know why they rented me a camaro but they did uh same same deal they it was in a different city i think had it been in the same city i'd probably be screwed but it was a different city again they tried to uh breathalyze me field sobriety passed them same same ticket exactly that I got the other time. <laughs> One would think, okay, like this is enough. Like you gotta stop what you're doing. So we're now we're back to where I moved into my girlfriend's, not under good circumstances, and you know, I'm not working. I'm working sparingly when this job calls me to train the person who's replacing me, which wasn't 40 hours a week. It was here and there when couldn't figure out what to do they'd call me and walk them through some things so i wasn't making much money so i took on a job delivering pizzas it sucked but it was money you know it was wasn't the hardest job things were going okay i was using still i it was anywhere near so clean and sober i'm uh just still in a total wreck but you know i'm trying going you know, i am still actively going to na actively seeing a therapist completely fooling myself or not at this point i wasn't fooling myself i didn't care it wasn't that i that i, that I wanted to die or i was looking to die or i was suicidal because I, I, I didn't feel suicidal at all was, i didn't care like i was so numb to everything from the drug from the opiates i just like i didn't i just had no feeling it was just i was just a walking zombie it was like it was, it was like i was barely human I'm trying, and I know I have a huge problem. I know I'm, I'm going to die or be in jail if I don't stop. But it's, it, it still it didn't stop me. So uh, one night I'm delivering pizzas. Honestly, like I wasn't even, I was not even doing them this night. I, I was uh, withdrawing. This particular pizza joint was open till three in the morning, so that's some late deliveries. So I'm like on my last delivery, really late one of the night. You know, I'm driving and sweating, not feeling good. You, know, you can read the symptoms. You know, you you sweat your ass off. You you, you start shitting your pants, and uh, yeah, it's unpleasant. So I'm trying to just wrap things up for the night and get home and sleep or try to do something hell man forget forget (laughs) blacked out completely like i don't even remember this accident i remember zero 
I'm driving to my last pizza delivery of the night, and I come to. I'm walking through the neighborhood, the middle of the night, trying to find my car. I walk around for a half hour, can't find my car. I'm like, luckily again, like right on the border between two cities. So I was in a city where it, and where the accident didn't happen. So that's probably the only reason they didn't find me walking along the street. My girlfriend's house wasn't too far away, so I couldn't find my car. So I to her house, and oh, I didn't have my phone either. So uh, I do the track, where's my iPhone app real quick, pull that up. And, oh, it's at my local police station. I'm like, fuck. So, yeah, so apparently I hit, I hit a telephone pole, DTE pole, and not a one-car accident. There, at least it's has been one car accident this whole time, and you haven't heard anyone how, else. Honestly, like, that, it's like, how can I not believe someone was looking out for me? But anyway. So you, you call the police? Yeah, yeah, I call them and say who I am. They're like, yeah, we just uh, towed your car and need you to come down and fill out a statement. So I'm like, okay, this is it. The ride, the ride's over. I'm going to jail. Like, go here and I'm walking the door. They're gonna arrest me, and this maybe this will be the what I need, or you know, at least this is gonna be the end. <laughs> so I make my way up to the police station, and again they pattern me with the, the sobriety tests and the breathalyzer I pass them and long story short they just had me write a statement gave me a, another uh, careless driving and a leaving the scene but uh, let me you know, I wasn't arrested or anything and went back home for the night and uh, this 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 was rock bottom though this this was the end. This is where, <laughs> I, this is where it, it turned around. And uh, uh, a couple days later, my mother had called up one of my uh, childhood friends and told him what was going on. So uh, he showed up at my house one morning at like six thirty, bunch of coffees, and he's like, "Yeah, we got some talking to do." And we we drove around. And, you know, he just kind of you know laid things out and you know. It was things I I knew. Yeah, you know, sometimes you need the right person to say it to you. I guess. Yeah, you know, he's like, you got, you got to do some kind of rehab, twenty four, you know, seven days a week, till you get stable, and you're, uh, you know, just what you're you're putting a bandaid on everything, and yeah, he just kind of laid things on the line, and you know, let me know what I was doing to my mother because she had the police knocking on her door looking for me. That night where I did the hit and run and came back to the scene, you know, they came to her house looking for me and, you know, just the things I put her and my girlfriend through and, uh, you know, just the, how deep of a hole I'd gotten into, what I needed to do to get out of it and, you know, how many, how many you know, I had people in my corner that were there for me that were, you know, wanted me to get out of this and. You know, I hadn't uh, hadn't burnt all the bridges yet. There's still people, you know, that cared about me and all that stuff. And for me, that was you know, that was a turning point. You know, I, I signed up at a, a methadone clinic the next day, and uh, I haven't uh, haven't been back to the opiates since uh, this was October of 2014. And technically, all the 
drugs you were using were legal prescription drugs, correct? They're all le- prescribed RXs. Wow. And methadone works the same way on these opiates as it does on heroin. Uh, I think that was probably a special case. But yeah, it can. It worked for me. It was, I mean, for me, I had done every kind of therapy you can think of. Um, but I never addressed the physical side. You know, I was always doing NA meetings and talking about it and trying to do the the behavioral uh, side of it, but not addressing the physical side. So, you know, this this time I was, you know, I wasn't I wasn't going back this time. So, how long have you been clean now? Well, it's uh, October 2014, so almost two years at this point, but. Um, you know, and a lot of people say you're not really clean when you're taking methadone. You know, that's the another stigma that's out there, but that's okay. You know, I don't doesn't I don't really care what what if people think I'm clean or not. I know I am, and I know I'm not where I was. So, mm-hmm. but right now I'm on a blind dose, and I'm at a really low dose, and I'm working to uh, hopefully be out of that soon. You know, if I feel like I'm going back to it I, I can always go back but uh yeah it, it's been a long 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 road of just a uh, downward spiral and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it was my doing but uh, there's a lot of people in my position so I, I can't be there's obviously something's wrong something's not working right that needs to be addressed how are your back problems now how's your weight like how, are, how have you been doing in those areas uh, you know, my weight right now, I'm probably about 525, give or take. Gain, I lost 200, gained 100 back. It's manageable with a leave or Tylenol mm-hmm. right now. I, I try to stay active and do, do the stretching and the, the right way to do things, you know, keep, keep my core strong so the back doesn't hurt. If you were talking to somebody else who was overweight, was having pain issues, and is starting to use drugs, starting to use pain meds, what would your advice be to them? (laughs) Unless you're a type of person that can, you know, take one when you really only need it and put it away, I'd say do everything you can in your power to find an alternative, you know? It doesn't... uh, it's amazing uh, what some exercise and stretching will do. Just be careful is what I tell them. You know, it's a, it's a strange place to be, you know, with a, a doctor or something that you, you trust telling you that uh, there's nothing wrong with taking this stuff. Uh, you can get fooled, but just uh, be aware of the consequences. You know, it's, uh, it's not worth it in the end. If, if you, if, unless you absolutely need them, it's not worth it. Somehow, every doctor I've ever had in my life has been one of those Nazi prescribers where they don't prescribe you anything. (laughs) So I've rarely ever uh, been written a prescription for anything unless like it's like amoxicillin because I'm sick. Meanwhile, if I ever wanted Xanax, Ambien, any kind of pain pill I want, all I have to do is pick up the phone and ask any one of my friends or family members because all of them get overprescribed to the point mm-hmm. where they could hand me 20 pills and not even think about it 
they're kind of starting to reform it. I don't know if you've heard, but like they're starting to make people like test like the levels of this stuff in their blood, so they know like if you haven't taken them for the month, they can start telling that, and they'll they'll cut people off supposedly. Now, how how soon that's going to be, and how much they're going to enforce it, and how long it's going to take to get applied, who knows? But I've seen a couple people I know that were prescribed. Uh, my girlfriend was prescribed uh, Ativan. Ativan, yeah. And uh, she was prescribed a real strong, like, two milligrams. And she really needs it. Like, she's a much stronger person than me. She just uses the things when she needs it. And, you know, when she's about to have a panic attack or something. But uh, they made her test to keep to keep getting prescribed Ativan. She has to test. They have to test the levels in her system to make sure that she's taking it the way she should be. Yeah, you know, just seen it ruin their lives. It's just, I, I get all these people can't be drug addicts. Yeah, I get it. Like you, you're saying, you know, everyone's responsible for themselves. Everyone needs to take accountability of their own actions. But there are so many issues here. Of you don't think that taking one hydrocodone a day is is an issue because you're managing pain and you have that understanding until you're taking. 120 a month at double the the strength you did that you took the pills but somebody was legally giving those to you and between yeah. the the doctor's analysis of you and then the script writing and then the pharmacist filling it are there no checks and balances and do we think that all this regulation all these checks are for something because apparently you can you could get more opiate prescriptions prescribed to you than I could ever find illegal drugs on the street ever. Mm-hmm. I one on one side, yes, you did it. You you made the choice, but on the other side, is there not any sort of uh, check and balance to prevent you from becoming addicted? That's that's my problem. That's the the catch twenty two mm-hmm. here. Is it really is? It, it's. Um the things I've, I've witnessed is doctors, you know, meeting up. No, nah, I don't know how these people got their licenses, but meeting people up in in uh, parking lots, buying scripts off them for a hundred bucks a script, and it's just, it's like you walk in these pain clinics. In my area, there's a lot of these urgent cares. They're like not real. They're like. They're not really like doctors. They're not hospitals, and they're not like necessarily a doctor's, like a general practitioner's office. They're just a couple doctors on staff with a pharmacy right there. How convenient! Yeah, I think the people just go in there, and you know the people that are really there for pain. You know, they're the they're the ones that are in there actually in the therapy room. You know, stretching out, working out, and then you got. The people that are just for the pills, they're just it's just a revolving door. They just come in, get the pills, and out the door. They don't, no one's like really examining them or seeing what's really going on with them. They're just handing them their pills and sending them on their way till the next month. They just want to pop a pill and problem solved. But we we know the reality is they're they're just using drugs at that point. They're not. Yeah, and they're these legal drug. Oh, you just call them their opium dens. What's it? The down there. The, just like in uh, that movie about Jack the Ripper, man. Yeah. Might as well be people. Might as well be smoking opium and those things. That's that's a good comparison. About a month ago, uh, this guy that I 
he grew up on my street. We were about the same age. I was a couple years older than him. We'd always we always run into each other at NA meetings. And we'd always talk afterwards because we, we'd known each other since we were little kids riding bikes around the neighborhood. You know, he was, we'd always share our stories and, you know, he would come over and did landscaping at my house and we'd always sit and talk, you know, about our problems and where we were at and how glad we were. And he, he had like a six-year-old boy and a fiance and a month ago still and five, six days later across Facebook, his, his fiance posts something saying he just passed away. So, you know, I didn't have to ask what it was or what happened. I knew. I, no one still told me yet what happened, but I know I don't have to ask. I know he OD'd. And uh, as just, you know, he was three, three, four weeks ago, he, we were sitting in my living room telling stories. And, you know, I gave him 50 bucks to do my fucking landscaping. <laughs> you know, he's dead and he leaves behind the kid and the fiance. It's eye opening. See what, uh, what can happen. And just uh, makes you, makes you, uh, appreciate things more that's for sure every day and how uh time's the most important commodity you have in life and it's got to treasure it it's just weird i i think differently than most i understand that but i i look at a family member died from a heroin overdose the police would want to go after the dealer and say well you're the one that killed them and, and most of the public's opinion is oh well you sold that person heroin. They they overdosed on the heroin, so now therefore you're you're responsible. But if a doctor prescribes you 120 opiate pills and you OD, it's like, well, he he made a choice. He took too many pills, and it's it's a weird double standard that I don't I I'll never understand. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> that was a joke. I think Mike didn't Michael Jackson's doctor serve some time or. I, I don't know about that. I think it was, yeah, he might have, but that's such a high profile thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) For your friend that just passed away, is is there going to be anyone held accountable for that? Or is it just going to be another dead junkie? It's sad because people don't have more empathy. They don't sympathize with someone's situation. Oh, no. And this will will take it to another level here. But uh, and maybe my family felt this way at one time, but. When he passed, my friend Scott, uh, parents and brother came to his house where his fiance was at with his kid, took his kid, told her they weren't having a funeral. His body was either was cremated already or was about to be. They weren't having a service. And, you know, she, she could probably see the kid if she wanted to keep seeing him. And they left. You know, they, I guess they were, they were already prepared for this moment. And they had been prepared for a long time. And, you know, maybe that's how it is when you do that to your relatives long enough. Maybe that's the point some of them get to. I don't know. Yeah, so I actually took it upon myself to have a memorial service for him uh, next weekend. And, uh, yeah, was, <laughs> I was informed his family won't be coming. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I, I've been in his family's shoes. I mean, my, my brother was a, a chaotic mess by, by the end of his life. And... I would have gone to his service if we had one, but my mother didn't. So I, I get the frustration and the writing them off, but it's still a human being. And exactly. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, thank look forward you. to listening to your stuff, man. Yeah. Thank you for putting it out. No problem. Thank you, Jeremiah. 
Next up, I speak with Dave. Much like the first story, Dave lost many years, destroyed a lot of relationships, and wasted a lot of money on an addiction that he tried to break himself from. But with all the help and all the outside forces, he just couldn't seem to pull himself away from it. Oh, how you been? I'm good, man. I've been uh, thinking about how to start this thing off. <laughs> it's, it's rough. <laughs> there's, there's, there's too many details, and I'll probably miss a bunch of them, but uh, well. we'll see what the moral of the story is behind there, because I still don't know what it is. Do you want to share your name? Yes. My name is Dave. I know uh, Justin through the Generation Y podcast. Long-time listener. First-time caller. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and when I saw that the uh, the premise of this new podcast that you're doing, um, I thought it was appropriate um, that I share my story. You know, I have a lot of stories, but as, as far as it pertains to um, substance use and um, mostly alcohol, but I did everything. Usually alcohol leads to uh, yeah, other yeah. stuff. The reason I, I kind of want to share my story is because once upon a time ago, around 2013, maybe early 2014, I started going to AA meetings. It always appealed to me that a lot, a lot of the speakers um, at the meetings they have, uh, they're called speaker meetings. The format is usually somebody will go for about an hour telling their story and then you can – breaks off and you can, you know – insert your, you know, whatever you want to say. But I never got a chance to do that because you need three months of sobriety. And I never did that. Wow. Well, um, cause I do not go to AA meetings anymore. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll insert some of my feelings on that once we get to that point. Cause I was one of the more recent chapters. Mm -hmm. I didn't really start drinking or really doing anything in high school. I was pretty well behaved. I mean, I, I had a beer or two with my friends. You know, if we snuck it, you know, we, we would sneak a you know pack of cigarettes or something like that. But really nothing, nothing abrasive. Even in college, my freshman year, I remember coming uh, home from uh, coming home from the weekend. And I'd get back there on Monday and the dorm would be completely trashed. And I would flip out because there would be beer cans everywhere and they took i remember one time they took the door hinges off and used it as a beer pong table yeah of course it was, it was my closet at, at that point in time i absolutely hated it i don't really think i had my first legitimately drunk experience until i was maybe close to 21 um it wasn't pleasant i think i was home with my parents and uh i think i drank like there's this one drink. Have you ever heard of a black tooth grin? No. What is it? Is it liquor it was, or beer? It's, um, if you know the band Pantera, yes. obviously, Don Bagdarrell, he, he made a drink called black tooth grin. It's two shots of Jaeger, a shot of Jack and a shot of Coke. That's... I drank four of those and like five shots of Parrot Bay in the span of like 20 minutes. Destroyed my upstairs bathroom. My mom never knew about it. My dad said, you keep it quiet as long as I never did again. Well, <laughs> It probably happened on the regular for the next friggin' decade. Yeah. I was usually pr pretty well behaved until maybe around like 23. And I found this local bar around me that had karaoke on Sundays. Went there, had a good time, found out they had it on Thursdays, started going on Thursdays. So now I'm drinking Sunday, Thursday, found another place on Wednesday, started going there. 
And because it's Friday and Saturday, now I'm drinking Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday. So you end up being drunk more than not. I don't I don't think I realized this at the time, but I dropped out of school after my freshman year of college. At the time, I thought it was because I didn't know what I wanted to do. But looking back on it, I think it was just because I preferred to have fun. I didn't really have a job. I Every now and again, if I needed money, I would go snooping around the house until I found a $100 bill or something, try to make that last me. I did that for a good while. In, in that span of finding fun, as I like to call it, I stopped spending time with my fiance. I was 22. I was engaged to her for a year. She called me cheating with somebody that I met out at the bars. Just some uh, random girl. <laughs> yeah, I think I spent two months with that girl. Yeah, it wasn't a very good return policy. When you meet somebody they're hooking up with and you lose your fiance, nah, it didn't really... Uh, didn't I, I have really a lot of friends out. that were in like a party mode in high school and they just kind of never grew up, never got out of the party mode. And it sounds like your party mo- mode started maybe later. It started, it started a lot later. Eventually, I, I started slowing down at the bars and started just drinking at home. Even such things like, uh, I remember there was one time I had to babysit my nephews, and I somehow couldn't tolerate that. I couldn't let myself just like hang out and have fun with them. I think they were like 12. If I would get like a second, I would go off and like sneak, sneak a shot of whiskey about 10 times. Just you know, to cope. Like, yeah, throughout the course of the night. And I think one time they asked me why I was slurring my words. Thank, thank God that Nat never uh, came out. Came back. Oh, God. And I think that's, I've been saying this for years now, that I just never wanted the party to stop because I associated the drunk feeling good feelings with that. With a good time. Yeah. I think I was arrested four times. Four. I, I've only been arrested three times in my life. <laughs> they were they were they were all uh, only three times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that ain't shit, man. You got me beat. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they were all alcohol related, and they were all subsequent years, all in October. Um, so I got arrested four Octobers in a row, which seems kind of strange. Within a week of Halloween, too. That was just your time when you. Yeah, I I don't know why, but um. Every time it seemed like I was really lucky with the way that things were. Uh, maybe I should uh, maybe rewind to each of those times. Sure. Yeah, let's start with the first one, if you don't mind. Yeah, the first one was the weekend before Halloween. <laughs> one of my friends that worked out at one of the bars that I frequented, she was going to uh, to another place. I think it was, uh, it was actually like a gay bar she hung out at with every now and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've never been there. It's not really my scene so i'll I'll check it out everybody kept buying me double shots of course i i drove home blacked out um my dad answers the door i it's just hard to hard to think about some of the stuff sometimes um i remember him saying this is it never again you know it's over and i kept saying what's over i don't know what your problem is you know just the shit you're doing you know you're going down a wrong path and i you know you're, you're killing yourself and i you know this isn't you and then i started screaming crying started throwing punches at him. He tackles me in my bedroom upstairs. My mom calls the cops. The cops come up to my bedroom and say that the, not not really uh, trying to arrest me or anything. They're, it looks like they just want to give me like a nice little talking to. They say, uh, you know, your dad and your parents really care about you. 
and they want you to stop hurting yourself, I think you should do something about that. I told the cop to go fuck himself. <laughs> of course. The cops yeah. are actually being cool. They're doing their job. They're not coming in and dragging you out into the street. No. And, and But no, you're drunk. Absolutely. You're you're drunk and you're angry. and But angry at myself. Yeah. That's that's where I was. That's why I was screaming. I wasn't... They, they might as well have just been the like an angel that's trying to like talk you down. So like, I don't... I don't want to hear it right now. They drug me into the car. I think I was laughing at the time, like hysterically, like in a way that you'd picture somebody on bath salts. Yeah. That, that sort of way. But um, you're just drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Drunk. Incredibly so. Spent the night in the clink. The next day, I started going to therapy twice a week. I did. I went twice a week for a year. It didn't do anything. I never stopped drinking. I think I went to the therapy sessions drunk and or high sometimes. Oh, jeez. Just because that's what I did. It's um, the party. It doesn't stop. <laughs> no. Um, I didn't let myself relax. That's, you're you're going to find that that's a common theme, that I, for a long, long time, I didn't let myself be in a comfortable or fun environment unless I was somewhat inebriated on some level. It didn't matter what the substance was. Whatever I had my hands on or could think that I could get away with. I remember one time my therapist saying to me that uh, she thinks a lot of alcoholics drink vodka because it's the most easy to cover up on your breath. I just took that as a, maybe I should switch to vodka because it's easier to cover up. Of course. I drank vodka. That was the first hard liquor I started with. So yeah, and I would it seems like most people start with that or like Cuervo. Yeah, I know? would. Uh, I would down a pint of vodka, no breath, just yeah, just it's dude. easy. And that would be my my night. <laughs> yeah, and you probably didn't think you had enough. No, no, I could continue drinking after that. It's pretty bad. Yeah. So you switched so, to vodka. <laughs> yeah. Right. At least for for a little bit, but I don't like vodka very much. Yeah. But I digress. <laughs> I guess we can fast forward to the next time I got arrested. That was, oh, this was before my DUI. Mm -hmm. It was a driving incident. I got pulled over maybe, I don't know, not, maybe not a block, maybe at least, maybe about a mile away from my house. Um, the cops pulled me over. I did a field sobriety test. He obviously knows I'm drunk, but he's kind of messing with me. And he keeps asking me questions and just to see, see what I was doing, what I was drinking. He puts me in his car and I didn't want to call my parents to pick me up because I didn't. Yeah. So I, call, so I called my girlfriend. It's about three in the morning. She comes and picks me up maybe about an hour and a half later. The whole time I'm sitting in the cop car. Have you ever seen Superbad? Yeah. Yeah. You know the interaction that those cops are having with him? It was like that. They're, they were joking around with me the whole time. It was interesting. Like I like I felt like I they were my friends afterwards. Mm -hmm. They didn't give me a DUI. I think they wrote me up for speeding five miles out over the speed limit. Um, I don't know why, but I figured they might have thought that might have been the most benign of charges that they could do. They couldn't let you go with nothing. They had to write you up right. for something. Six months later, I went to court for that one. Uh, the cop meets me in the. Um, Meets me in the back office just to talk about what you know what they're going to charge me with and what I can expect. I said that, you know, I just went back to school. You know, I'm doing really well for myself. I started my internship. I'm working two part-time jobs, and it's, uh, I'm sorry, I messed up. I, I'm just really trying hard not to do it anymore. He said, you know that, you know, I have a son. What if you killed my son while you're driving? 
like I, I know I know that's a reality of drinking and driving and it's something that could easily happen you know especially how many times I had to drive down the road squinting just yeah. so I can see the dotted line you know long story short so you learned your lesson and I said I think I did we went into the courtroom and he told the judge we're just gonna drop it wow yeah so we dropped it do you um, think that was a good thing they dropped it or a bad thing they dropped it I think you could probably go both ways on that one. I think there's the aspect of tough love, you know, where someone, you know, doesn't just give you the little slap on the wrist and they actually make you pay for your consequences so you actually see in action. Yeah. I tried to roll with that for a little bit, but if you keep doing what you're doing, you're it's eventually going to ramp back up. We're, we're, we're getting to the AA chapter in a little bit. But something I always heard in those rooms was that a lot of times you convince yourself that you, you can still drink, but in moderation. If you tell yourself that and you do have a problem with either drinking or drugs or whatever it is, gambling, insert the vice here. Yeah. You're eventually going to end up exactly where you were, if not in a worse spot. Um, so that's pretty much exactly what happened. A year after that was when I got my actual DUI actually a right around the same mile marker that I got pulled over the year before, like within a block of that same street. It was on the same street. Was it the same uh, cop? No, but he's going to show up again later. <laughs> he shows up again later. Okay. I get the, I get, you're so disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm, I just, it would have been ironic if he pulled you over and said, I, I gave you a pass that one yeah, time. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. No, but he he um he absolutely shows up again on the court date for the DUI. Um, I'm waiting in the um just in the little waiting room with my lawyer. I see a truck pull up, and I don't know his unit number, but for some reason I knew it was him. And I saw him get out of the car. I'm like, I I just know that figure. I know it's gonna be him that walks to that door. And he walks out, and he's waiting in the lobby. And I come back in, and uh. I say, Officer Hendricks, right? And he says, yeah, where do I know you from? And I said, Indiana Jones, he, which he used to call me because I am an was an archaeology major. And I said, Indiana Jones. It's like, oh, it was, it was disappointing. Oh, no. Come on, man. Like, like one of those, um, like he wasn't mad, just disappointed. And that probably made you feel horrible. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the worst part of it. Um. <laughs> He was actually the guy that ended up processing me for my fingerprints, you know, taking mug shots and stuff, which is humiliating. Yeah. But we did a lot of talking while we were in there. Like, it's nothing too much about legal jargon or anything. Just we just ended up talking. He actually gave, ended up giving me his number and said, uh, if you ever need anything or just want to talk or need, need help with anything at all, just give me a call, which I ended up doing. He, you know, every now and again, I'll have a little chat with him. Mm-hmm. He said, "Next time I see you on the road, I just want to wave. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to be pulling you over, putting you in cuffs." <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, bring them just in case. Yeah. So that third arrest was a DUI, but you didn't. You were just driving and got pulled over. You didn't hit anyone or anything. No, I didn't hit anyone. I didn't hit anything. They said I was speeding, but thinking back on it, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, the the street they pulled me over. They said that I was going sixty nine, and it's a 30 mile an hour speed limit but 
I don't know. You have to really be galloping to get up to 70 miles an hour on that particular street. Mm -hmm. That's probably like the least of my worries. Yeah, yeah. It was after that that I started going to AA meetings. I tried to go as often as possible, maybe two or three times a week, because I thought that that was something that by the time my court date rolled around, I thought it would be something that the judge would like to see. I was expecting mandated AA time or volunteer work. Turns out they didn't expect me to do any of that stuff, and I just did it for myself, I guess. We have a family friend that that goes to the meetings or did go to the meetings and I called him right away and asked him, uh, you know, if there's any dates going on or anything. And, uh, he said, what are you doing tonight? And, uh, nothing. So I went to a seven thirty meeting. They gave me a 24 hour sobriety coin. The person heading the meeting hugged me and I cried. It was a very powerful moment. Yeah. You know, it was a very accepting, um, I felt like I was where I needed to be at the time. I picked up a sponsor one of his things was making sure you share something at every meeting. You know, just there's always something on your mind. You need to share it. Inevitably, I stopped maybe maybe five months later because I came to a meeting and I said to them, you know, I think I'm in a place now that I don't think alcohol is controlling me. And if I want to have a drink now, I do. I just control it and I don't. I don't let it be like a ghost. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't let it be a demon in my life. It's I, if I want to have fun, I have fun. I just don't get angry about it and overindulge anymore. And, uh, pretty much after I was done talking, the guy heading the meeting just ignored everything that I said and just said, just so you know. And he looked around at everybody and said, this is an abstinence only meeting. And I just took that as, you know, there's, like there, there's no gray lines. You either drink or you don't. And if you do, you're an alcoholic. And if you don't, you're sober. And I didn't want to label myself as an alcoholic anymore. It just, it just doesn't seem right. Well, and he could have said, hey, all of us have been there, thought we had a hold of our demons, and we really didn't. So maybe you should stick around for a while and work on this with us instead of just cutting you off in a sense. Pretty much. I ran across an article a couple months ago. And I kind of put things in perspective. I think it might have actually been a podcast where they were talking about alcoholism. And my, I think it was uh, Things You Should Know. Mm -hmm. And they were breaking down the different definitions of what alcoholism is. The actual term of alcoholism is a clinical definition that is determined by the quantity you drink with the symptom of having the shakes like delirium tremens. And I never got to that point. Mm -hmm. I never drank that much. What I was was a problem drinker that I binged and I didn't stop until I felt like I it, it, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what the limit was because there really wasn't any. You're, you're out of control. You're abusing it, but you're not you don't have that strong physical addiction, I guess. Right. I, I, I never woke up and felt like I needed to drink. During that time, I think it might have been in between. It was bef definitely it was it was before the DUI. That was probably when I was doing the most drugs. Mm -hmm. That was when I tried heroin for the first time, meth, cocaine. Um, I probably drank ten bottles of Robitussin a week. Yeah, um, I got into the cough syrup for a while. It was gross. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's um it's strange. It's very strange. 
I even uh, huffed paint for a while. I thought that was cool. It was. I never did that. Never yeah, did that. You're you're probably better off. Yeah, it's... I'm okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to save the remaining brain cells I have left. Yeah. But but meth and heroin. That's two things I've never tried myself. You know. You know what I I I got into. Well, I didn't really get into them, but I had a um, while I was doing my internship for archaeology, I had a roommate um, at the university. I didn't know it at the time, but because we just smoked pot, you know, when we came back from, from field work, it never really got beyond that. And, uh, once the semester started back up, he said that he went to a Grateful Dead concert and some guy hooked him up with acid. I said, Oh, you know, I'll buy some tabs off you. You know, like how much are they? So I bought that, started that on a regular basis. Then he had shrooms, got that. Then he started getting into heroin and, Hey, I never did heroin before, but I've taken pills plenty of times, and what? I know it's almost the same. Yeah. So I bought a handful of bags off of that of, of that off of him. He got meth one time. I tried that with him, and uh, I can definitely say that uh, for people that are willing to take prescription pain medications, but think heroin's a bad thing, they're grossly mistaken. They're exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, I've been kind of preaching it on the podcast that Adderall and meth, very similar, uh, oxycodone, oxycotton, uh, Dilaudin. Yeah. I mean, all these painkillers out there who I've helped family members get off of, it, it was no different than getting a heroin addict off heroin. Right. I actually listened to that podcast today, coincidentally, the, um, war against drugs. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's good chat, by the way. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never really got hooked on any of those. Um, I think subconsciously I wanted to try them because I wanted to debunk the common myths that once you try, you're always chasing the dragon. Yeah. Maybe did heroin three times. I never woke up the next day needing it. I actually didn't even really like it. Meth is annoying. You know, you're you're pretty much racing for 15 hours. It's It's nothing. But yeah, definitely drinking and what was the other one? Cough syrup I was on for yeah. a long time too. But that was because I couldn't get my hands on anything else. Yeah. And I didn't have it. And there was stints where I didn't have a job. So and sitting around. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, it is. I mean, you can pretty much be tripping for 10 hours straight and you just spend five bucks. And when um, you can get the the uh, prescription codeine cough syrups from the doctor. Oh my God. I remember. I've never, I've never seen it. It was terrible. I'll need to, I'll need to build Lil Wayne. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've gotten through three arrests. Ah, uh, the fourth one, the fourth and probably definitely the worst one, the one that could have put me away for a year. So you drop out of AA and that I just pretty much lived my life. Like there was nothing, Nothing strange. In that time span, right before the fourth DUI was when I lost my license. I only lost it for two years. Oh, no, not two years. Two, two months. So that was July and August. I think $2,000 worth of fines, and I had to take highway safety classes. In October, this is 2014, I believe. That was when I got my fourth arrest. Went out with a bunch of buddies drinking on one of the uh, the main streets in some town around here. Um, I didn't drive. We didn't have anything to eat that night. And I remember saying to myself that I need to eat something big if we're going to be going out for hours on end drinking. Because I, I knew how we do. So I wanted to make sure I ate something. You got to build the base. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I did not 
eat anything, but I drank normally anyway. Um, started getting the spins, started getting disgusted with myself, so I started walking home, which isn't that bad. It was probably maybe a half-hour walk, you know, not that bad, a mile or two. On the way home, I stop at – I'm such an idiot. I stop at another bar, diner, grab something to eat, and, of course, a double shot of uh, wild turkey to wet my whistle. Mm-hmm. There's a car dealership right across from that diner. I was blacked out during all this. I don't I remember flickers of it. The next thing I remember is cops behind me shining their light on me, saying to drop what's in your hand, and it was my car keys. And they said that I keyed 30 cars up and down in the uh, car dealership. Yeah. I, I, I'm not even going to try to defend that action, but at least it wasn't people that own the cars and the business hopefully has insurance or something, but uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're getting to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will. That was when I started going to not, not even therapy. I just went straight to a psychiatrist at this point, mm-hmm. you know, like somebody that gets that upset about their drinking or their actions is obviously unhappy. Not that I think medication is a way to alleviate responsibility from yourself because I think a lot of times people will blame their depression or blame their anxiety or their poor actions on just generally their lifestyle. But the medications, they help me baseline myself again. And uh, I think it was kind of funny how easily I was able to obtain these medications. I think I spoke to the doctor for at best five minutes. Yeah. I walked out with a prescription for naltrexone, which was um, it, it makes you like get sick if you if you start drinking too much. It's kind of like Suboxone for um, for opium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, some sort of anti-anxiety, was some some sort of generic one, Adderall, and a very expensive antidepressant. And this is all over a five-minute conversation. Yeah, I can't even get my doctor to give me like sleeping pills after two hours of talking to him. So <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, it all depends on uh, the doctor. Yeah, I, t- I took those for a little bit, but it didn't make me feel right. Strangely, I, I just started to feel um, artificial. The emotions I was having weren't real, but I did start to feel happy and it, it calmed me down. Eventually, I just cold turkey stopped taking everything. Um, maybe after three months. For one, I felt like a hypocrite because I always spoke out against it, saying that people that need to take medications like that are just avoiding the problems. And it was very expensive. Mm-hmm. So I stopped taking them, went to court for... Uh, the for vandalism and all that. <laughs> yeah. The guy from the dealership, my family works in the um, automotive business as well, mm-hmm. and we kind of know each other. Ooh. And uh yeah. And we, my dad and I went and had to, had a chat with him. He said that the insurance was going to come after me for the bill, which was, I think, $21,000. And if we didn't pay it or if the charges weren't dropped, that I'd be going to jail for a year. Also, because it was violation of probation for my DUI. Now, I think this is something that happens to literally no one, but the owner of the dealership paid the insurance company and he dropped all the charges and he said that I seem like a good guy and I'm a kid that was confused and unhappy at the time doesn't think I'll ever do it again 
and wishes me the best of luck. And every time my dad sees him now, he asks how I'm doing and, you know, happy that I'm on the track that I am. You know, I have two jobs now, live in a part with my girlfriend, have a 2015 Jeep, you know, like I'm doing okay right now. And I think the last thing, the thing that, that keeps me from acting that way anymore is the shame of laying down the people that have stood behind me every single time. Yeah. You've lucked out severely with, Oh yeah. And I'm sure these four incidents, those are just when you got caught, you know, we, we know that we fuck up a lot more than just (laughs) when we get arrested, you know, with my, um, with my DUI, this is something that I always thought about too, that they caught me drinking and driving when I was on the downslope of my issue. They didn't catch me at the height of it. If they caught me a year and a half before then when I was driving them blacked out every single night, I probably wouldn't have cared. I just would have been pissed off and wouldn't have tried to change anything. But they caught me five years into my drinking when I'm tapering down everything because I you know, had a job. Uh, I, th- that's when I first started my archaeology job. Mm-hmm. I had the job. I had a really nice girlfriend that wasn't into drinking or drugs or anything like things are working out. And I feel like getting that DUI was that extra push over the edge. And it it helps when your friends or girlfriend do not drink or smoke or anything. Uh, It just it helps you not do those things because you're not surrounded by it. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, that same day that I got my DUI, that was on Sunday. I went in Monday morning and got fired. Not re- unrelated. So you're just getting hammered. I mean, that's what happens when you start screwing up is things start compounding. Like if you couldn't have paid that fine, if that car dealership owner wouldn't have paid the fine for you, that would have been a violation of probation. It would just would have compounded and compounded. Oh yeah, absolutely. I thought I was trying, I was doing the right thing by, you know, walking home. I didn't want to dr- drive with my friends. But in reality, the friend that we were driving around with, he lives like two blocks down the road and we walked to the bars. I could have just waited it out and hung out with them. But you're drunk. You don't you're not thinking straight. You just want to walk home and you want to get out of the situation. You're annoyed. Yeah. People think meth and and heroin make you choose bad decisions. But I we all see alcohol make people do crazy stuff. And absolutely it. It, you don't need bath salts. Alcohol's bad enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might as well be. Give somebody that's in a bad mood enough alcohol. I mean, I, I was out with uh, one of our neighbors the other day just drinking in his apartment, and his girlfriend just broke up with him. So he's drinking like a fish. Mm-hmm. That's not going to make it better, dude. We we yeah, have it's... a mutual friend that uh, her boyfriend and her were fighting. She told him over chat, I'm going out and drinking tonight. And he said, maybe right now is a bad time to do that because you're not in a good state of mind. And she turned around and told us, you know, he thinks I'm an alcoholic. He thinks I'm a screw up. And I read his, his email or his message and I'm like, no, he's, he's worried about you and you shouldn't go out and drink and make the, the problem worse. So you see when she's saying that that's what she thinks about herself, but Mm -hmm. isn't ready to admit it yet. Yeah. That's what we kind of gathered because at first I thought, well, you know, it's kind of a crappy thing for him to say until I read his message. And then I was like, oh, wait, it's you, not him. (laughs) Yeah. When you're in that state and you're not ready to accept it yet, 
someone telling you to, you know, hey, maybe you should calm it down a little bit. That's I, I don't know what you're supposed to say to the person that's having the issue, but telling them to relax is not. I don't know. It's kind of a counterintuitive. Like you just gonna make them want to drink more. But yeah, I mean, like today, like I, I still drink. I, you know, I'll eat an edible if I'm in the mood too. Mm-hmm. But I haven't gotten any fist fights. No drive. Certainly no driving. And no when arguments. You, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, when you drink, do you just have like one or two now? Uh, it depends on my mood. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's like a like a weekday or something like that, like scotch has been my thing lately. Like a nice bottle of scotch, like I'll have a snifter of that, and that's usually it. If it's like uh, like a Sunday afternoon or Saturday night, and I'm just like hanging out, I'll have like two or three of them, you know, something like that. But it's never to the point where I start being hurtful or um, saying things that I regret. That was a big part of it too, you know, drinking with people that I actually don't really respect, you know, like be- being with women that have the same issues that I do. And me projecting those issues onto them. I'm not with somebody like that now. Yeah. You know, so when I drink, all the truth isn't coming out, you know. I used to drink around people that I really just didn't care for. And so the only way to enjoy their company was to be drunk. And it made me drink more and more and more just because that was the only way to cope with the idiots and the assholes that I hung out with. And what's (laughs) why why would you hang out with those people if 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 you can't stand them when you're sober, why do you have to leverage alcohol to make it tolerable? Yeah, I don't really understand it either. But, I mean, I, I did all the time mm. for for in that, like, four or five-year span of time. Those were the only people that I hung out with. Yeah. All my other real friends went away. You know, I mean, like I, like I said, like, I'm drinking, but I'm not going out drinking at bars. Now that I'm not doing it anymore, every single one of those people disappeared, and all my childhood friends are back. You people know. that matter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's called growing up. Yeah. I used to have drinking buddies. I used to have smoking pot buddies, but they're all gone. Once you stop drinking and stop doing drugs, they they go away because that's all they want is somebody to be miserable with, I guess if you want to call it that, but Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's um I think that's something everybody says like it's you know, misery enjoys company, which is true too. But with the drinking buddies, I think it's it's just so much easier to do that than develop a skill. So they'd rather just hang out and drink and have fun and play video games, you know, fun. Yeah. Instead of, you know, going out and, you know, playing basketball or, you know, lifting or working at, you know, anything. Any hobby. It's, it's just easier staying drunk. I used to skateboard and then I started drinking. And, of course, when you're drinking, you're not skateboarding anymore. Right. uh, I remember I I won a first place competition once. I was trying to get a sponsorship, but by that point, I destroyed my life to the point where skateboarding wasn't my priority anymore. And you know, I got out of it. But Uh, my whole saga started in probably like 2009. I was a personal trainer at the time, and then I started drinking and I started missing clients, and I got fired from that job. And then I don't think I worked out again for another like three years while I was busy building up my alcohol tolerance. And I often wish that if I got those five years back, you know, who wouldn't I have met? What are the the low caliber people that I've dated? None of them would have been around. I probably would have still been engaged. I'd probably been married by now. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I'm with someone great today and we're, you know, we're about to get engaged, but had I not lost that person to begin with and I stayed on her level and was an adult when she was an adult, I would have saved myself a whole lot of grief. And all the opportunities that you missed. You know, graduating college three or four years later than I had to, um, not having a good GPA. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's hard to think about, but I think, I mean, you have to keep moving forward and keep doing the best things that you can do today to make tomorrow better. But goddamn, if, if I don't think sometimes what I could have done given an extra five years of my 20s, a lot less hours uh, trying to find pills and alcohol and more time trying to find grad schools. How old are you now? I'll be 30 in November. 30. I think you've pulled your, your head out of the sand. And, and I would hope that if you ever find yourself slipping into that angry place again, you would hopefully identify it. Now, when you're drunk, that's hard to do. But Oh, I do. So every now and again, I'll, I'll find a stint where like I drink heavily for like three or four days straight and I'll catch myself I'm like, whoa, mm -hmm. it's going back down that way. Like got got to stop for a couple of days or whatever and get my bearing straight. Yeah. But given how bad 2011, 12, 13, 14 were, 16 has been the best, most productive year of my life. And I can only credit it to actually moving forward and being sober. Yeah. The, the, um, the best thing that I think happened was moving in with my girlfriend and out of my parents' house because it got me out of the environment that kept me doing the same thing. And, and you hate yourself because you live with your parents. You feel like yeah. you're a piece of dirt because you live with your parents. You're a failure, and then you drink more because you feel this way. It's, yeah, it's, it was it was, it was was all compounded. Mm -hmm. Like three years before that, everybody lived with their parents. Fast forward three years, I barely, gra I barely graduated college and I don't have any money to move out of my parents' house. And I'm upset that I don't have any money. So I go out every night drinking because I just want to feel okay for the night. And then you realize that you could have been out the whole time if you just haven't been messing up like that. You know, it's, uh, it's very strange why people do the things that they do. I think that was a lot of it. Does your, your current girlfriend, does she know your past? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she knows everything. I think that being the case, she's pretty um, aware of my habits. Like if she sees that I'm taking too big of a pour or keep going back to the bottle, like she'll tell me that, you know, you don't need any more. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I go for like a week and drink too much, that's, you know, she'll, she'll let me know. It was slow beginning. I think I drank really heavily when we first got together for like the first six months. And then as I, I think that was just adjusting to my new lifestyle. You know, I'd, I'd never lived with somebody before that actually gave a shit about how I was treating myself or at least acted like it. But I, I didn't want to ruin an, yet another relationship for the 10th time in a row because I couldn't stop drinking. Can drinking really be more important than your relationships? It's not. It's just not. No. I guess you don't need the shakes to show the addiction. You know, right. It's when yeah. you're, when it is a coping mechanism right there, you're, you're afraid of this new situation you're in. Therefore, the only way to cope with it is to drink. So, yeah, it's circular. Yeah. It might not have been a physical addiction, but it was definitely an emotional one. Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. I would prefer somebody smoke pot than drink every day. At least it's easier on their body, but people don't acknowledge that 
if you're having to do something like that every day, it, it turns into an addiction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's once again, it's not a physical addiction, but if you feel the emotional need to be altered that way every time, I don't know. I think that kind of person needs help too. Yeah, they do. But I think at the end of the day, you, you have to help yourself. You can go to AA meetings, you can go to therapy, but unless you actually want to change your behaviors, you have to be the one to do it, and it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. You didn't become an alcoholic overnight, so you're not going to be not one the next day. You know, It's going to take months and years to reroute how you think and repair your relationships, um, You know, all the physical and emotional damage you've caused people. How many people I've had to apologize for shit that I've said to them? You know, stuff to my parents, you know. I like that you said reroute the way you think because people will get stuck in this frame of mind, this path, this way they think, and it just keeps routing to a bad place, and you have to change that. Yeah. And the, the only way to do it is the, uh, the slow, progressive building of new habits to replace the old ones. I mean, you can't just stop doing what you're doing and expect other talents and hobbies and ways of life to just fit in there yeah. you have to find something else that you want to do and now you don't have time to do that anymore because you have other priorities absolutely you know I, I don't i mean as much as i'd love to i would love to have a saturday or a sunday just tripping on acid <laughs> but but i can't anymore because no. there's other things in my life that that need tending to yeah you know if i if i crush 12 hours of staring at the trees <laughs> as, as, as much as I like it, it's it. There's no place for it anymore. It was a lot easier when I was either single or dating another addict and didn't have a job, and they wanted to do the same thing too. It sucks when you grow up, man. <laughs> I know, I know. It was it was fun being stupid. You know, it just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have a place anymore. For the month of October, I'm going to be visiting some creepy and scary topics for the Halloween theme. Uh, We'll see how they go. So thank you for listening to this week's episode.